Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Matt taught this passage a couple of weeks ago, and so we're going to take a little bit of a unique look at it this morning, but I want to begin with the story about Dawson. Man, Children's Church is packed out today. Y'all have fun back there. A little story about Dawson, speaking of children. So this is 2012, and Dawson was about four years old at the time, and uh, my grandfather passed away, and so we were there in Chicago uh, for his viewing and then funeral, and during the viewing, we were at this big funeral home, and uh, it was for a long period of time, we were there for probably four or five hours, something like that, and of course, he's four years old and needs things to do, and my mom had just recently purchased a new digital camera that she was kind of proud of. Uh, I guess she wasn't using her phone yet. But uh, anyway, she was teaching Dawson how to take pictures with that digital camera. And Dawson had the idea, well, why don't we take some pictures of Grandpa? And she was like, eh, I don't know. But she finally kind of consented and, and said, well, we can take some pictures of his hands. And so she pulls up a chair to the casket, and Dawson's there learning how to take pictures and taking pictures of his hands. And it was all nice, you know. About 30 or 40 minutes later, one of the family members brings Dawson back into the space where we were doing our viewing because he had found him elsewhere. Because in the meantime, Dawson, I guess he felt like, I'm, I'm going into business now. And he took his, you know, digital camera and he went out into the hall and eventually he made his way into another viewing. True story. And he just walked right in, I mean, just confident. He just walked right in, grabbed a chair, pulled it up to the casket, and started taking pictures of the corpse. Story. When my mom started looking through her roll, she was like, oh, oh. And so the family member brought him back in and said, you might want to watch your kid. (laughs) Parenting fail, probably, maybe. I don't know. But as I've, I've reflected on that moment a few times, I thought, you know, what must that family have been thinking? Here's this kid comes in, I mean, maybe they were horrified, or perhaps it brought a little levity to an otherwise heavy situation, because death is heavy, right? Death is heavy. The reality of it is heavy. There's nothing trivial about death. It's ugly. It's hostile. It's violent. It's cruel. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He calls it the last enemy for a reason. It's a true enemy. When you are around death, when you are up close and personal with death, you know that this is true. Death is not light. It's not pretty. It's an enemy. But theologically, the reason it's such a true enemy is because of its relationship with sin and Satan. As Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, That sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. 
This was not God's design. God designed life. He created life there in the garden. He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We were created to live. We were created to enjoy life and life with our God in his world for all eternity, immortally. That's what God's design was. But Satan and sin entered into that picture, and sin brought with it death in its wake, and this is kind of an ultimate affront to God. Death is an affront to God. It's existing now still in defiance of God. It's Satan's chief weapon, and it's despicable. So, if you will follow, if Jesus came to bring us life and life more abundant, Satan comes to bring us death and the stench of death more abundant. In John chapter 10, Satan as the thief is described there as he who brings and comes forth to steal, to kill, to destroy. And so I say all that because in John chapter 11, what you find is a collision a clash of titans, as it were, with the author of life versus the reality of death. And I want us to see it together this morning. The author of life versus the reality of death. There's so much here for us. But first, I want to just prove that to you. I want us to see for a moment in the text how death is the primary theme. It sits in the backdrop, I should say. It's not the primary theme, but it sits in the backdrop of everything you see throughout this chapter. So allow your eyes for a moment to glance down through John chapter 11. Notice how that it opens with Lazarus sick and his sisters kind of worried sick that he's going to die. In verse 8, the disciples warn Jesus with regard to going to Bethany, that region. They warn Jesus that he's just been there and has just narrowly escaped being stoned. He's a wanted man. They want him dead. In verse 16, Thomas indicates that the disciples are actually quite nervous about going themselves because they don't want to die. Throughout this text, we find that Jesus also seamlessly talks about two kinds of death, spiritual death and a physical death. In verse 14, we find confirmation that Lazarus does indeed die. Then we see numerous details surrounding the reality of death. You have a, a kind of uh, organized mourning. You have weeping. You have wailing. You have details about him being in the tomb for four days. You have details about him already decomposing. There's going to be an odor, right? Death is everywhere in this story. Then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and after that, what happens? After that, the Pharisees up the ante to try to put Jesus to death. They want him dead, all culminating in verse 53. Death is everywhere. So the theme of death is palpable here. If I could summarize it this way, I would say that chapter 11 is really encompassed with Lazarus's impending death, his actual death, and then resurrection from the dead. That's the backdrop of the entire scene. And then you have Jesus layering and teaching about death, both physical and spiritual. And then you have the Pharisees wanting Jesus dead all the more. Death is everywhere. So the stench of this ancient foe is everywhere. It permeates 
the entire scene. Now, having seen that, what I would like to do is something a bit unique for the next few minutes. I would like to notice how each major character in this story, in this narrative, interacts with death. How each major character interacts with the reality of death. And I think as we do, we'll find wonderful and practical application for our lives. These truths, I believe, will help us. All right, so let's track through this together. And trust me, my friends, it's going somewhere really good. Number one, notice this is more towards the end of the story, that for the Pharisees, the enemies of Christ, death is something to be used. Death is presented in this story for them as a weapon to be used. It's kind of a solution to their problem. Their problem is Jesus. He's a problem for them. Check out your text, verse 46. This is subsequent to the resurrection of Lazarus. The audience there sees it, and some of them believe, verse 45, but some of them, verse 46, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and the council, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So they've, tried, they've stopped trying to explain the miracles away. Now they've just accepted them and they're going like, we've got to put a stop to it somehow. Interesting, we'll talk more about this next week. They don't wrestle with the reality of them, the veracity of them. They just, blinded by Satan, tools in his hands, they seek to end him. So death is going to be convenient for them. A convenient thing for them, a solution to the problem of Jesus. And it ultimately culminates in verse 53 with, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You even have a... Interesting little moment in this with Caiaphas where he unwittingly prophesies Jesus' substitutionary atonement, which is crazy. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But you find that the Pharisees here, simply put, are wanting to use death as, I think, pawns in the hands of Satan to end Christ. It's a solution for them. And I just want to pause here and make a couple of comments that I think are important for you and I to wrestle with and to hear. I say that death, I'll clarify, as engineered by you in any way, death as engineered by you in any way is never a good solution to a perceived problem. It's not a good solution to a perceived problem. I can say this maybe perhaps a little tongue-in-cheek. No matter how many mob movies you've watched, and how many body bags you've seen pulled out of trunks and dumped in rivers, right, to bury the incriminating evidence or something like that. This is not the way. And you, you might say, well, Dustin, that's obvious, right? We're in church. We know we're not supposed to commit murder. Well, I think it's important sometimes that in church we state the obvious. So can I just say that to you? Murder's not an option for you. It's not an option for you. It's not a solution to a problem. You've got to jettison any thought along those lines quickly. But can I say this? There are ways in which our culture tries to sanitize that. And we've legalized it in the form of abortion. Where millions of babies, millions of babies are killed every year, are murdered 
every year on the basis of convenience. This baby is inconvenient for me. And so the solution, as it were, to the problem is to get rid of it, to kill this life that God has given. It's not a solution. Okay, my friends? It's not a solution. It's a problem. Abortion is not the answer. Can I also say this? In light of our culture, suicide is not the option. Suicide is never a good option. Our culture has a weird relationship with death. In many ways, we've sanitized it. We don't, we don't want to deal with it. And in other ways, we've sort of sensationalized it. Um, I'm not going to make many comments about this, but just to attach to this reality that it is a little bit sensationalized in our culture, I was made aware of the fact that in the last couple of years, last few years, there are a couple of shows actually on major platforms like Netflix and Amazon Prime and others that have sought to sort of open that window of suicide, sensationalizing suicide as a potential option in a lonely world, in a difficult world. And I really am not making any statements about those shows. I haven't seen them, don't really know if that's true, but here's the reality. All of that is coming from Satan himself, my friends. As we've already stated in John chapter 10, he's described as the thief who comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Suicide is not a good option. And I just want to plead to you guys, understand that everyone, everyone is made in the image of God. You are stamped with the imago Dei. You are special in that sense. You mean something to your creator, your designer, and you mean something to us. So I just want to say to you, if you've ever contemplated that or if you ever contemplate it in the future, if the thought comes in your mind, understand you won't be judged at all. We just want to encourage you to come talk. Don't ever entertain that as an option. It's not an option. Death is not a solution. For the Pharisees it was, though. That was going to be the solution to their inconvenient problem of Jesus. Death was to be used. Secondly, though, for the sisters, Mary and Martha, it was something to be feared. It was something to be feared out of love. I want to suggest to you that this was a good response in the immediate. Mary and Martha here are not sinfully fearful. They're not preoccupied anxiously with death. They're just reacting in a moment out of love for their brother. The brother has suddenly taken ill. We have no indication anywhere else that Lazarus has been ill for a long period of time. The indication is that it came upon him suddenly. It was likely violent. And these girls are just scrambling to try to find help for their brother. Eventually, they send messaging to Jesus. Jesus, we need you. Come heal our brother. They didn't want to lose him. And if you note the text, if you've read through the text, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that, for their fear in this crisis moment out of a desire to protect their brother. Now, I do want to clarify for a moment because we've, we've often said, look, in Christ, we no longer have to fear death. And that's true. Is it not? That's true. And I think we'll see that as this narrative continues. But I want to suggest that this is different 
This is different than, for example, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, look, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Different in a couple of ways. First of all, Christ, uh, Paul, in that moment, had the privilege of seeing that Christ did die for our sins and rise from the dead. He was on the other side of the empty tomb. But more importantly to this point, Paul was talking about himself. He was in a, a, a particular circumstance, and he was reasoning through it as a Christian and going, look, for me to live is Christ, and it's good that I'm here with you, but to die is also gain. And so Paul is reasoning for himself. Death is different now in Christ. This is different with what's happening in this story with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. All that to say, look, it's appropriate. It's appropriate when someone you love gets sick. It's appropriate to feel strongly about hoping they get well. It's appropriate to pray that they would get well. This is what they're doing. These girls are just nervous that their brother is going to die. And the scene gets rough. The scene gets rough. We typically don't think about this all that much. Matt commented on this a couple of weeks ago. We don't think about this because we know the end of the story. But I, I, I don't want us to do that. I want us to kind of wade into this a little bit and feel with these sisters, perhaps relate in ways with your own experience. Can you imagine their brother suddenly getting sick and then realizing that he's going downhill fast. All they want to do is help him and help get him well, and then it becomes clear that he might die. And so they send messaging to Jesus, and he doesn't show. They're reacting in this moment out of a heart of love, fearful that they're about to lose their brother. And that brings me to number three, that for Lazarus and his sisters, it was something in this text, to be suffered. If you can put yourself there in that living room in the first century, you understand that Lazarus' body is breaking down. He's perhaps writhing in pain, perhaps gasping to try to just get a breath, perhaps intermittently yelling out in pain. I mean, there's no IV drip of morphine for him. It was likely brutal. And his sisters are just watching it all unfold. And these ladies are undoubtedly serving him as much as they can possibly serve him to try to help him, try to get some comfort for him, perhaps help him heal in some way. They're likely exhausted physically and emotionally. I can imagine them pacing the floor. Perhaps that one point in time going, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We've seen him heal everybody else. Where is he now? Where is he for me? Where is he for us? Right? They're desperate to find help. It's difficult. This whole thing has gone from zero to 60 so quick. And then he dies. Lazarus stops breathing. And I'm imagining that they are numb. They can't believe it. They were just together and happy and things were good. And then he gets sick and then it goes downhill so fast and then he's gone. He's gone. 
How did this happen? So friends, I, I want to enter into this with you, and I think the text enters into this with you because we can relate. In lots of ways, we can relate. For Lazarus and his sisters, it was in this moment something to be suffered. Nothing light about it. So that brings me to number four, that for Jesus and the sisters, it was something to be grieved. These sisters were rocked by this, and this is evident all over the text, but especially in Mary and Martha's first interaction with Jesus. In verse 21, you find Martha coming, and she loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them, but when Martha meets Jesus, there's no pleasantries, there's no, like, how was your trip? It's an immediate, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This is on their mind. This is on their heart. It's heavy for them. They're rocked by this. Notice verses 32 and 33. When Mary comes, now when Mary came to, the, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Can you just imagine her? She collapses. She just collapses in front of Jesus. We see in the next verse that she's weeping. Tears are just streaming down her face. And she says exactly what Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is so heavy on their hearts. It was something to be grieved. But be encouraged, my friends, that Jesus doesn't rebuke this. He enters into it. He enters into it with them. Verse 33, when Jesus saw their weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In verse 35, we find that Jesus wept. What a difficult moment. But can I say this? What a God. Amen? What a God. What a Savior. who enters into our suffering with us. What a blessing. I thought John MacArthur had a really interesting take on this. We can contemplate this. You can see this on the screen. As we consider the capacity of Christ to enter into our weakness, to enter into our suffering, he says it is a kind of wrenching experience for Jesus that comes because he collects in his sovereignty he collects all the data that is visible in this event. He not only sees that sorrow in this moment, this is interesting to contemplate, but he's able to process immediately the sorrow of every death in every human relationship in every human family. He can project his omniscience to grasp all of human sorrow and suffering in the death. So Jesus is our great high priest. In this moment, he's experiencing the pain around death. Mary and Martha and their grief, their absolute grief that in just a short time, they've lost a brother. Their world has been rocked. Jesus enters into that. And it's beautiful that Hebrews will go on to say that he, he did so intentionally, that he might be a sympathetic high priest. What a blessing. Amen. 
You can never face something that Jesus hasn't already subjected himself to experience in the flesh. Because he desires to be a faithful, comforting high priest to you. But there's more here. There's more here. In Jesus' emotional intensity, it's very interesting to note that the language here in verses 33 and 38, you'll see it in your text perhaps as deeply moved, deeply moved. This language is probably not the best translation. It's actually a rare word. It's only used like three or four times in the New Testament. It's used also in extra-biblical Greek, but almost exclusively for a kind of volatile anger. Interesting that the word actually comes from a kind of sound effect that might come from a, a large horse or a bull in a moment of anger. It's, it, it's kind of a snort. This is the idea behind this language. It's visceral. It's a visceral response. It's a volatile response that Jesus has that leads me to a fifth thing. That for Jesus, death was not something to be accepted. Please track with me, my friends. For you see here that Jesus is outraged. Jesus is outraged. The stench of death that permeates this entire scene awakens his wrath. For as we've sort of laid the groundwork for, we understand that death encompasses everything about the brokenness of this world, that it is a product of sin and sin's presence here. So everything about this scene is communicative of Satan and evil and his forces against life, his forces against God and righteousness and what his design is for human flourishing. But in this moment, for Jesus, it was not something to be accepted. It was to be outraged. I love what D.A. Carson said. When he puts it this way, Jesus is outraged for what he sees is death, the last enemy. It is outrageous. Death is desperate. It's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul says that death is the last enemy. No, it does not have the last word, but it is the last enemy. We ought to be outraged by it. Track with this. Carson goes on to say, we lay our spouses in the tomb. We bury our babies. We bury elderly parents. And of course, there is part of us that remembers with a certain kind of joy that death does not have the last word and that this aged mother who died after nine years of Alzheimer's and couldn't recognize any of her children she wakes up in glory and she's in the presence of Christ. And one day she will be raised in bodily form in the new heaven and the new earth, a home of righteousness. Of course, that's glorious, and it is. But Carson wisely notes that it doesn't detract from the tragedy, the ugliness of Alzheimer's, and death, and sorrow, and bereavement, and all that because of sin. Jesus sees sin, and the tears, and the death, and the loss. 
And he is outraged and is troubled and weeps. A couple of times I've told you in this past year about my sister and asked for prayer for my uh, little nephew, Owen, who's battled liver cancer. And it was such a joy to be able to see uh, them this past week as we traveled back to Virginia for Thanksgiving. But it's been a hard year. We're praising God that he's healthy right now, has a new liver and appears to be cancer-free. I'm so thankful for that. It's been such a hard year for my sister, in part because the, the better part of it was spent at the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati. And as a relational person, she interacted with so many families who had their children there and still feels deeply the reality that many parents leave there without their kids. You go, as you look at the world, you're like, children's hospitals should elicit such righteous anger in our hearts at sin and suffering and death. You go, of all things, that shouldn't happen, right? This shouldn't be there. No one should have to deal with that. so hard. But for Jesus in this moment, boy, we can praise him. It was not something to just come to terms with. It was, watch me, something to be outraged about. He doesn't have to accept it. Feel free to say amen, my friends. He doesn't have to accept it. He acts. So Jesus says in this moment, take away the stone. Amen? Take away the stone. And the people go, but no, 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 there's an odor. Take away the stone. Can you imagine just a little anger in his voice? Roll back that stone for it's not just stone and it's not just about Lazarus. It's about everything that is encompassed in death. This is what he's seeing in this entire scene. Note it for yourself in the text, verse 38. Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, don't miss this. This is so good because Jesus is so confident. So confident, right? There's been no activity, no movement going on in the tomb yet, but Jesus is audibly praying, and he makes it clear. I don't have to do this. Father, you know that I don't have to do this out loud but I'm going to do it because I want them to hear it. I want them to know who I am. I want them to believe. Isn't this good? So Jesus, utterly confident, says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Verse 42, 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Again, he tethers himself to the Father. They are acting as one. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And then, can you imagine? Suddenly there's movement. The man who had died and was clearly dead, that was the whole point of him delaying. The whole point. No mistake about it. He was dead. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a blessing. Lazarus, come out. (laughs) Yes, to display his glory, my friends. Yes, to provide another conclusive evidence sign that he is the Messiah, but also to face and foil an ancient foe. For lastly, you see that Jesus interacts with death as something to be conquered. Amen? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. When Lazarus comes out, walking out of this grave, it's not just a victory, my friends. It's an ultimate victory. It's an ultimate victory. He wins with a word. It's kind of a premonition of what he will do at the end in the valley of Megiddo when he will win with a word like a sword coming out of his mouth. He will defeat once and for all Satan and all of his evil horde. But it's all kind of present right here, right? It's a kind of clash of titans, the author of life against the reality of death. And in this moment, Jesus wins with ease. My friends, he wins with ease. And so he's acting out the power behind the statement in verse 25. When he said to them, I am, present tense. Martha going like, we we know that you will raise people on the last day. Jesus, no, 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 think differently. I am. I am the resurrection and the life. So, friends, Jesus is the tip of the spear that conquers death and flips the curse on its back. When Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, it's about way more than a dude in Bethany getting a few more years to live. It's about way more than that. You have to grab that. My friends, when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he's essentially mirroring what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Death, hell, sin, grave. What you got? Are you guys with me? What do you have? With a word, he makes a body that's totally still start moving. With a word, what a blessing. So in this clash of titans, as it were, there's one clear winner. It's the author of life the author of life, and this changes everything. 
about our perspective. This is why we can read for our own hearts and lives, verses 25 and 26. Look at them with me, John 11. Jesus said to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, though he physically die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, everyone who really lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? And I ask that question to you as well this morning. Do you believe this? In an ironic twist that was planned before the foundations of the world, Jesus would succumb to death. He would accept death temporarily, right? As the final death. And then when he came walking out of the tomb, my friends, he ended the power, the ultimate power of death forever, creating the opportunity for you and I to trust in him, to believe in him, and have a radically different perspective about it. What a blessing this is. My friends, what a blessing this is. This is everything to us. So I mentioned Hebrews 2 earlier. And see it for yourself on the screen. Verses 14 and 15, it's so beautiful. The context of this passage is the writer to the Hebrews saying that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and so condescends to take upon flesh to incarnate here and in so doing, accomplish what we couldn't. Now since, verse 14, the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Jesus makes it possible for us to be set free. Amen? What a blessing. So if you take away two things here, take away these. Number one, in the crisis of life, this present world that is still including of evil, brokenness, sin, sorrow, and dying, understand that Jesus weeps. Jesus as our great high priest enters into that grief with us. He enters into that suffering and sorrow with us. You can lean into him. Every one of us will be touched by death. Perhaps you are in a space, a period, a season of grief right now, and I would just encourage you, lean into Christ. Lean into this one who weeps with his friends. Not so much because he missed Lazarus, as one commentator said, because he's going to see him in about three minutes. But because he empathizes with his friends in everything that comes with this enemy called death. Jesus weeps with us. He leans into our grief. He leans into our suffering and invites us to lean into him. What a blessing. This is not just Christianese. Pastors speak. This is truth. The truth of the word of God. Jesus weeps. But he also wins. He weeps and he wins. 
And it's really not a battle. And we need to be buoyed by that, encouraged by that, that our perspective on death is different because Jesus wins. Amen? Jesus wins. So if you know that, if you can answer Jesus' question, do you believe this in the affirmative? Yes, I believe. I'm not trusting in myself or anything that I could offer as merit to God. I know I'm a sinner in, in need of forgiveness and grace. If you've turned from your sin to trust in Jesus, he's changed your perspective. You know that you will live with him forever. You will experience God's design for all eternity. You can sing, released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he calls me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. In that moment, in front of that tomb, with a word, Jesus arrested death. And yet it was about a whole lot more than that guy. It's for all of us. Amen? Hallelujah. So let's worship our Savior, our King, the one who is triumphant today over sin, death, hell, and the grave. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for the fact that you care and that you enter into our suffering to be with us in time of need. And we are so thankful that the arms that hold us in the midst of grief, in the space of weakness, have already defeated the ancient foe. They're strong arms. You've won. And we will win too as we abide in you. So we thank you. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.